was actually working for Greg at, uh, at the time, uh, logging. And, uh, he said, um, yeah, I heard uh, you and the boys might be getting into a bit of mischief on the weekends. And he said, why don't you, uh, why don't you just come up and play rugby? And you can do all the same stuff, but you'll actually get patted on the back for it, not thrown in the clink for the night. Hello and welcome to the Offfield Rugby Pod. My name is Brian Moylet, former Irish age grade international, now playing and coaching in Canada. Each week I chat with a player or coach about their journey and get their insights. On Instagram, I share content around mental performance and clips from the pods. So follow me there at offfieldrugby if that's something you're interested in. Also, if you enjoy the pod, please be sure to send it on to some friends who you think will get value from it. And please subscribe to the pod wherever you're listening so that you don't miss an episode. Cheers. Today I'm chatting with Jamie Cudmore who went to four World Cups with Canada played professionally for 15 years and won a top 14 title with Clermont Auvergne in France. We chat about his journey in the game from starting out playing in Squamish BC as a way of staying out of trouble to playing in New Zealand, Clenetley, going to France and turning down a chance to join a massive club in the English game. He chats about how he got his break over in Europe and how he felt going into dressing rooms full of superstars when he was a young lad starting out from Canada. He chats about why the Scarlets released him after a year, how he got his first call up for Canada as he was about to head off hitchhiking across the country, and then there's a good story about why he turned up drunk to his first training session in France. We also talk about what it was like being a captain in France, why Clermont lost so many finals, being coached by Joe Smith, why Canada have fallen down the rankings and what they need to do to start the climb back up. Also, we chat about concussion, how he was treated by Clermont and how we, as players, coaches, supporters, can help players and help the game in this regard. Here's episode number 40 with Jamie Cudmore. A lot of people stress about money. Where should you be investing? Are you prepared if there's a crash? And loads more. And if you're not an expert, finances can be really daunting. I know the people at Sparks Wealth and they're brilliant. What they do is they educate you on your finances without any jargon. They create a personalized plan for you and manage your money so that it's working for you and so that you don't need to be worrying about it. You can book a free, no obligation Zoom call now on their website, sparkswealth.ie. So I saw some pictures there of you skiing as a kid. Were you on the slopes a lot? Oh yeah, skiing was my uh, was my first sport. Um, you know, growing up in Squamish back in the day, it was um, you know we we're just up the street. So um, you know, from two years old onwards, I was on skis. You know at least two, three days a week um, into, you know, playing uh, or being part of the ski team uh, at House on Secondary as, as a youngster. And that would add, a, you know, another few days uh, on the hill um, into, uh, you know, representing British Columbia, Western Canada and Junior Canada with, uh, uh, in skiing. Uh, so it was kind of, uh, it's funny, I was a, I was a, a junior international uh, before I even played rugby. So, yeah, skiing for me was uh, is one of my great loves, um, and then snowboarding later on, and a lot of snowmobiling with buddies and stuff. And as as I'm sure you know, out on the west coast, um, it's uh, 
cost prohibitive to uh to ski up in Whistler these days yeah that's cool that you did that as a kid um and went so far so what kind of stuff was it like what kind of things did you compete in so i compete competed in uh like and when i was a youngster it was kind of called the nancy green league uh, where we we do slalom, GS, super G downhill, the whole nine yards. Mostly in the in the in the junior leagues, you just kind of do, you know, GS slalom, maybe a bit of super G, not too much of the high speed stuff. Um, and then as I uh, as I got older, you know, you you get into the fist races, which are uh, you know obviously a bit more professional and a bit more um, you know a higher standard. Um, and then uh, you know that's when you really start moving. And uh, I was pretty good in the in kind of the combined, where you know you'd either do uh, or not either you do the downhill and the slalom, and then you get your combined times from that. And uh, I was really good at either going really really fast or being technical, but uh, I wasn't very good in in between. Yeah, I just went skiing for the first time when I came here like four years ago, and I never realized how extreme the sport it is. Like, I started flying down it. Like, you know, you play rugby, whatever, you play different sports. And I was like skiing, like my, my aunties used to go skiing, you know, and, and I thought it was yeah. whatever. But, man, you can pick up some speed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, uh, I had a coach, an old Austrian coach back in the day. We were kind of, what, 12, 13 years old. And uh, he used to teach us how to, uh, you wouldn't turn, you just follow the mountain. And that was his, yeah. his way of, uh, of teaching us how to ski. And we just follow the mountain uh, all the way down, whether there's bumps or whatever, you're just going so fast and just learning, learning how to ski at speed and dealing with bumps and airing off berms and stuff and just, you know, just having fun. Yeah, nice one. And so then was it you were a teenager and you started playing up in Squamish, playing rugby? Yeah, yeah. In the summer months, I was uh, I was doing a bit of logging, a bit of gas work up and around Whistler. And um, my uh, my dad, he's my dad's next pat. My dad uh, emigrated from England with my mom uh, back in the in the late seventies or the mid seventies, um, and then we moved up to Squamish then. And uh, from that, uh, I always knew about rugby. My dad played played rugby at a young age, and always wanted to get his boys into rugby, but. Uh, there wasn't any, you know, organized rugby definitely in Squamish in those days. Um, and, you know, it was a bit down in Vancouver, but it was a bit far to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's a local uh, club, the Squamish Axemen, which, uh, you know, lately have had a good resurgence uh, through, uh, you know, a lot of good work from some uh, dedicated folks up there. Um, and at the time, there was uh, Greg Richmond, who uh, he's a local Squamish legend in, you know, logging and, and rugby circles. Um, and I was actually working for Greg at, uh, at the time, uh, logging. And, uh, he said, um, yeah, I heard uh, you and the boys might be getting into a bit of mischief on the weekends. He said, why don't you, uh, why don't you just come out and play rugby? You can do all the same stuff, but you actually get patted on the back for it, not thrown in the clink for the night. So I said, all right, let's, uh, let's give it a go. And that's kind of how it all started. Keep you busy on Saturday and then Sunday. Well, on Sunday you'd be you'd be so beat up from playing rugby you uh, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be able to go off and uh, get into any, any any type of trouble. So um, you know it was just good to find a, an outlet for uh, you know a young young teenagers kind of you know, getting the the negative energy out uh, on the rugby field and having a kind of a a group of uh, a group of men at the time who you know kind of showed you the right the right way and kept you. Um, kind of on the straight and narrow if need be and or kind of supported you along the way or gave you a bit of uh, 
bit of wisdom uh, if needed. And uh, no, it was uh, it was great because you know, Dad said pretty soon I'd love for my boys to play rugby, and you know a few years later it actually came to uh, came to fruition. Yeah, good stuff. And so when then did it start getting like not serious, but you know you moved down to Caps. Did you move down there to play in Vancouver to kind of see could you go a little bit further? Yeah, so at that at that stage, uh, I didn't know like you could play rugby professionally. I didn't know you know any, about any of the kind of the stuff that was going on in Europe. Um, so I was uh, I was basically moved moved down to North Vancouver to get out of Squamish because you know at that time I I was kind of was getting pulled two ways between you know being a shithead teenager with a maybe not the bad crowd but just making some bad decisions. Um, and the rugby crowd, which was, you know, giving me a good outlet on the weekends. And, uh, I went down to, uh, to Vancouver and looked, uh, look, looking for a club. And, uh, I originally went out to the rowers, um, and had, a, had an original training there. Um, but the kind of the aftermatch, you know, not aftermatch, the after training, um, environment wasn't something that I really connected with. Um, there's a lot of guys that work in the city, you know, suit and tie and all that. And I'd come down straight from work. So I'm still in my you know, suspenders covered in sawdust and all that. So, um, uh, the following Thursday, I, uh, I ran into, uh, an old, um, Capilano, um, a supporter and he said, Oh, what are you doing? I, I hear, um, here you're uh, coming down looking for a club. And I said, yeah, I'm actually on my way to rowers to go training. And he goes, Oh man, you don't want to go there. Come over to Capilano's. And I was like, Capilano's man, I hated those guys when I played. And not so much I hated them, but like we had some battles. Um, and now guys that are like some of my best friends, like Nick Belmar, Gordy Brown, who are, you know, Caplano uh, stalwarts. Uh, those are the guys we'd, we'd be going at each other, hammer and tongs. And so I was like, no, I don't want to go to those guys. I'm just going to go there and just start fighting at training. <laughs> um, but um, I, anyway, I went down. Uh, I was going to get on the bridge and go over uh, to Stanley Park, and there was a massive lineup. So I was like, oh, I don't want to sit in this and probably get late for training. So I was like, screw it. I'm going to go over to Klahani and uh, and showed up at Capilano's training. And as soon as I showed up, it was like tons of guys who were kind of, you know, coming out of trades, similar to what I was. A lot of younger guys. Um, and as soon as I walk on the, uh, the, the dirt parking lot there, you've got, um, uh, Dean Massey, the, uh, the, the big wiener, they call him. He's, uh, he's a young, little, young, uh, no, sorry. He's a smaller hooker who was kind of like the, uh, the, the jester of the club, uh, always the comment for everybody. And, uh, and he goes, Oh, yik, yik, look who it is. It's a big boy from Squamish. And, uh, and off I came. I, oh, yeah. Hey, how you doing? And that was it. That was my nickname for like the first couple of years. I was Squamish. And, uh, and I got in and started playing some touch with the boys. And everybody was kind of the same age as me. So I thought, Oh, this is great. You know, this is kind of, this is what I'm looking for. Um, and from there, it kind of, it just took off. Like, started playing a decent level and uh, started playing Prems. Um, and then the following year, I had an opportunity to go to New Zealand and do an exchange with East Coast Bay's uh, Rugby Club in North Harbour uh, down in New Zealand. And um, the club supported me with that. And uh, and that's kind of where everything just kind of kept taking a, a step forward. Yeah, nice one. And then, so you went to New Zealand and did you, you got, was it looking with Canada before you went to Europe? Yeah, so um, I went down to New Zealand. Um, I, I played a season there uh, with East Coast Bays um, in the senior seas. Um, and then being being a youngster at the time, I was, I think I was only about 19, I got a look in uh, to play for Harbour Under-21s. 
Um, and at that time, when I got that information, I got a call from one of the uh, um, club captains, uh, Julio Dakotas, and he said, uh, he said, Squamish, you're coming home. I said, what do you mean, Julio? He said, uh, you're coming home. You're going to the, uh, you're going to the Pacific Pride. They want, they want you in the, in the, in the squad. And I'm like, okay. And, um, you know, I don't know if you know Julio, but uh, he's very persuasive. Um, so uh, a few weeks later, I was on a plane to come back to Canada. And, uh, yeah, that was kind of the next step up in my rugby career. And uh, I spent a year with the, uh, the Canadian Development Academy. Um, and, uh, and then from that, um, started to get some opportunities with Canada and then uh, World Cup. Um, and then ended up going to Wales with my first uh, professional opportunity. So what, what age did you go down to Caps? So you were, were you like 16, 17 when you kind of headed off and went down there? No, when I got to Caps, I was kind of, I was 18, 18, okay. 19, and then uh, down to New Zealand the next year, 19, 20, um, and then back up uh, for a year, 2021 with the CCSD. Um, and then uh, following the year um, in the Pacific Pride or the, the Development Academy, um, we went on a Germany tour um, at the, the end of the year and did, did pretty well, beat the German national team as a bunch of under 23s and, you know, had a lot of fun. And uh, on, a, on the plane ride back, I was with a buddy of mine, Colin Ukes, who was also representing Canada and played professionally in Europe. I said, Colin, what are you doing this summer? I got nothing on the go. Um, and he goes, oh, let's um, let's hit trek across Canada. I'm like, yeah, man, sounds good. Let's do it. And we had all our gear. We had our rugby boots. And we knew enough people, you know, across the country through the rugby network. Um, and we figured we're just going to couch surf and hitchhike and play rugby because, you know, summertime is – there's more rugby in all across Canada as opposed to just, you know, on the West coast uh, mm. during the winter time. So uh, that was it. We were, we were off. So we, we got to the airport, we went over to, um, went over to Thunderbird stadium to watch the premier uh, premier league final. And, uh, and off the back of that, we were gone. So we're walking down through the stadium and literally like walking past the field to leave the stadium and, and go off on our trip. And we ran into David Clark, who was uh, our coach at the time, uh, but he was also the Canada coach. And he said to us in his old Aussie accent, he goes, Colin, Jamie, come here. And he goes, you two, you're coming with me to Australia next week. And we're like, what? what? Uh, okay, sweet. So uh, that's kind of how it all started. Um, and off the back of that, that summer with that Australia tour, um, I got an opportunity uh, to go to Finesse in Wales the following uh, September. And, um, and then that's kind of where the professional, uh, professional rugby started. That's mad. That's mad. Yeah. And so how was, yeah. li- how was living in Wales and playing there? That would have been well, like 0203, probably early doors of professionalism. Yeah, so Wales was amazing. Like, um, you know, I sh- I showed up. I had I still, like I said a few years earlier, I didn't even know rugby. You know, you could get paid to play rugby, and they're going to give me a couple grand a month, a house and a car, and I'm like, this is amazing. So I show up, and uh, and you know, back then there wasn't the internet was a thing, but it wasn't like it is now. So you couldn't like just pull your phone out and figure out you know where you were going and, and all this. But you know, we had magazines like Rugby World and stuff for like that. So I looked through a few. Uh, few of those to kind of get a bit of information uh, on Finesse and um, kind of knew where it was, knew a little bit about the history and kind of the legends that were there playing. Um, and I show up, uh, you know, in, for preseason and I walk in the change room and there's like 
Stephen Jones, Scott Cornell, um, you know, the Easterby brothers, um, who else? Uh, just Leslie Finau, like all these like legends mm-hmm. of the Welsh game and the international game. And, uh, and I'm just kind of like, Jesus Christ, how the hell did I get here? And I just basically kept my mouth shut and worked my ass off and, you know, had, a, had an amazing year there. And how did that come about? Like, did someone from Clinetley just watch Canada play and just be like, or how, how did the move come? Yeah, so the move came, uh, actually came from a guy who I played with in that uh, Australia tour, Pat Dunkley, who was a hooker for Canada back in the day. And Patrick was in Wales already playing. I think he was playing for Pontypool. Um, and Patrick said, listen, uh, we're looking for, you know, internationals over here and especially guys with British passports. So I'd gotten a British passport obviously mm-hmm. through my father. Um, and I'm like, yeah, I got a passport and I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's, let's give it, give it a try. And that's kind of how it all came about. So, um, Patrick, um, <coughs> excuse me, Patrick set me up with his agent and then it kind of steamrolled from there. And next thing you know, I'm in, I'm in Wales. Nice one. And was it like, you know, you say they're going in with all those superstars who you were just like getting to know and you'd only been playing rugby, what, five, six, seven years. Was that daunting or you just said you worked your ass off? But how was that like stepping into that environment? Um, well, it's, 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 it's hard to kind of describe it because I'd never been in that type of situation before, you know, like I'd never been in a rugby area where, you know, I would be in front of these type of guys. Yeah. I guess the last um the last kind of experience similar would have been that summer uh previously when we did the tour in australia and you know there was all the australian kind of a team that we played against um you know there's tons of legends on that that um field as well but it's like you're competing against them which is Mm. somewhat different um so yeah when you're now a teammate and you're you know you're with these guys every day um it was amazing for me because my my rugby iq and you know my all the kind of like things that I knew about rugby went from kind of here to kind of like off the charts in very, very short time. Um, and the, one of the great things about the setup there was if you weren't in the squad on the Friday or Saturday, you'd get loaned out to a first division team. And I got loaned out to Llandovery, which were up in the West country of Wales. And um, it was, it was outstanding. So I'm getting training with them all week. And then if I'm not in the, in the squad, I go up train with them on the Thursday and then I play uh, I play with uh, Flandovery, uh, and sometimes I'd even play two games in a, in a weekend. I'd play Friday night for Penethley, maybe 20, 30 minutes, and then the next day I'd play a full game for uh, Flandovery. Yeah, and it's interesting that because I know nowadays young players in academies and different things sometimes don't play a lot of rugby. Like they're in the gym and they're training and then they're not playing. And I understand it's a bit of a different game, like it is very physical these days, but like – how important do you think playing at weekends is for people who are, you know, 19, 20, 21, learning the game and developing? Oh, yeah, it's definitely, it's critical. It's yeah. critical. Um, you know, it's all fine and well to put guys in a professional environment, which is important. Uh, but if you don't have games every weekend, um, it's it's very difficult to, uh, you know, replicate those, um, you know, what you're going to go through uh, in, in a game environment. Um, you know, as you said, you, know, you can do all lift all the weights you want. You can do all the passing skills drills you want, but I mean, if you're not actually, you know, tackling people, getting up, you know, dealing with the adversity that you find in a game, uh, I think it's uh, it's very complicated for for kids at that age. And that's why, I, for me, it was outstanding. Like I, geez, I think I played probably 40, 50 games that year. 
Um, I actually got sick because of it, <laughs> which kind of blew me away. I didn't even, you know, when you're that age, you're bulletproof, right? You don't even yeah. think about stuff like that. But um, yeah, for me, it was it was critical that I was playing that many games to kind of get that experience with one, the training, and then two, the game time. So uh, yeah, it's 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 a big plus. Yeah, hundred percent. And even like playing in those like Div One, like you've these old guys that are stronger and that are more experienced, and you just you learn a lot as well. Versus oh, once yeah. again being in the gym, you know. Totally, totally. You can't learn the dark arts uh, in no. the gym or uh, you know uh, out there. You you learn them either in the pub with the old fellas or down in the deep dark uh, confines of a of a rock or a scrum, right? And those are the pieces that you need, especially for like a young forward. You need those mm. things to you know, to be able to, uh, you know, help your team progress and, uh, and be, uh, and be successful. Yeah, for sure. You can't learn a hitting bags a hundred percent. And then, so what well, season obviously went well and things happened headed off to France. Yeah. So, um, the following season, um, you had the world cup in 03 and, uh, I was very fortunate to, uh, have been selected then. Um, so that was my, my first, uh, my first world cup in 03. Um, and it was, it was a little, uh, it was a little bit disappointing uh, at the end of the uh, season because I wasn't, uh, re-signed. I was on a one-year contract and I, I really wanted to stay. Um, but that was the year that they changed to regions. Um, so there was obviously not that much space for non-Welsh qualified players. Um, and I understood that, you know, the, the coach was really good. He, he took me aside and said, listen, you know, we're not going to sign you because it's not, not fair to you because you're not going to get that game time if um, you know there's a Welsh guy ahead of you. Um, they're always going to pick the Welsh guy. I, I understood that, so um, you know I started looking around. Um, and that summer I went back to Canada and uh, you know got up with the Canadian team in preparation for the World Cup um, and started talking with some of the the guys who were also in Europe, um, but maybe outside of uh, Wales. So there's a few guys in England. There's a few guys in France. Um, and I started talking with Mike James, who was a guy that I looked up to at that time, who was, had a great career in France. And he kind of hooked me up with his agent and said, listen, you know, this kid's looking. And, uh, you know, I, I managed to play in all four games of that World Cup. So it was great. I was in the shop window and, um, you know, some teams came knocking. And uh, next thing you know, I'm off, I'm off to France after the World Cup. Nice. And how was that? Did you have to learn French, I'm sure. Or did you speak it from over here? No. No, no, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't the best student in school. I was, uh, especially with French. I'm like, you know, I think it was went into grade six French, and I'm thinking, I'm never going to need to speak yeah. French. This is ridiculous. And then ten years later, I'm like, ah. Anyway, uh, yeah, I showed up uh, in Lyon, and um, you know, some taxi guy was there to pick me up, and he started firing away at me in rapid fire French, and I had no idea what he was saying. And then I get in the taxi cab and. Geez, it's hour hour fifteen down to Grenoble, and uh, I just see the taxi rank keep getting higher and higher and higher, and I don't have any euros in my pocket. I'm like, Jesus, how am I going to pay for this? I don't know where I'm going. Um, this is like this is a nightmare. And then anyway, he drops me off at this apartment hotel well outside of town, in like an industrial park, and um, there's like a little code you got to put in the door, and you go up to your room and. Uh, and that's where I was for like the next couple of months. It was just like a room with a kitchen, a little couch and a bedroom. And that was it. So, uh, and there was no like shopping centers anywhere. I didn't know how to phone home, you know, like these days you get on a WhatsApp or something, but I was like, I didn't know there was country codes to call like back home. I didn't know any of this stuff. 
So I just kind of, you know, the taxi come pick me up the next morning and, uh, and, uh, and I go to training and it just kind of just built from there. And, um, you know, it was good because there was a good group of expats, uh, there in that squad. Um, and a lot of French guys who were really open, uh, to helping me learn French. And I did my best to, you know, sit with the French guys as much as I could, because I know that's important, uh, you know, for integration. Um, and, uh, yeah, things, things went from, from obviously difficult at the beginning, but it just, every, every month things got better and better. So the way you, you learned it, did you learn it kind of through like just chatting to the lads or were you going to classes as well or? Yeah, at the beginning we did a few classes. Uh, we do two or three classes a week, um, with, uh, with some of the other, uh, English speaking guys. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, the, you get, pick up the rugby stuff very quickly. Um, which is kind of your bread and butter, but um, then it's a little more co- complicated when you're out, you know, trying to trying to order a baguette in the boulangerie or you know, ordering your beer at the bar, wherever it may be. But um, you know, you pick that kind of rudimentary stuff up quite quickly, and then uh, you know, after that, we, uh, you know, just time, it's time, and just speaking and you know, making a fool of yourself. That's all you got to do. Yeah, because I did French for six years in school as well, and I'd say I have about ten words, so I, it would take me a while as well. Um, and then when you when you signed, like you say, you jumped into the cabs, like do you an agent just tells you? Do they say like, oh, you're gonna here's your ticket, you're gonna fly, and then because it's once again it's before like the inter- you don't have a smartphone in your pocket, and it's so like you just know like I'm getting on this flight. I'm going to jump in a cab to this address and I'll just wait there till someone collects me for training on this day. Yeah, that was, that was it. He, the, the agent sent me a, uh, an email with uh, the manager uh, attached. Uh, they gave me kind of the rundown of the first week. Um, and then, uh, yeah, the next, uh, the next, it was the next day or two days after the manager came and picked me up uh, one morning. Um, and uh, I had to go into the club and like sign all my, my contract and all the paperwork and everything and then he took me for lunch well this is where things got interesting i show up uh at the club get everything squared away it's great i start looking they start looking for an apartment for me so it was, it was great the, the 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 whole club was was outstanding um and the manager willie tafifinua who you probably know the name uh, roman uh, his mm-hmm. son plays for the french team now um anyway roman was just a little fella uh, back then um and anyway Will, willie took me out for lunch well as you as you know french meals have there's like a, a kind of there's levels right so you start with apero apero at the bar beer wine water champagne whatever you want anyway they start i'm like oh i'll just you know i have a, have a glass of beer okay because i'm i'm trying not to be rude i don't really know how this all works and they're like he's like no no champagne celebration you just signed your contract i'm like but we got training in like two hours <laughs> and he goes no no champagne champagne it's okay so we're at the we're at the bar for like 45 minutes an hour and this is like i'm like i'm okay this is, i'm trying to like slide some water in there because i know about training anyway champagne champagne then we get to the table bottle of white wine <laughs> then a couple bottles of red and then dessert uh and then digestive and then he's like oh wait one more bottle of champagne and then we'll go, then we'll go. And I'm like, I'm freaking like this. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh man. And anyway, it took me, take me to training and uh, I show up and the boys must've known. They're like, uh, Oh, did um, Willie take you out for lunch? I was like, yeah, <laughs> they all started laughing. 
and I was useless. Man, I had the the coach uh, Jacques Delmar uh, at the time, who's Jack's. A, he's a great friend of mine now, and he's been a, an amazing coach with you know Toulon and Paris. And he's looking at me. He goes, "Oh, kid more," and he's giving this big zero. He goes, "You're nil, you're nil," and I'm just like, "Oh my god!" I'm like, I just want to dig a hole and just fall in and die. Like this is the worst day ever. But um, that was kind of my introduction to, um, you know, kind of French French culture and uh, and you know the the long lunches, which I, I definitely do enjoy now. But um, yeah, it was not a, an ideal start uh, to my first uh, French uh, professional team. That's hilarious. And with that, like the French and drinking, like glasses of wine, like wouldn't would they be having a glass of wine for lunch the day before a game? Um, not so much, not so much at that time. Um, you know, a few guys, yeah, they go for a few beers on a, on a Thursday, uh, um, maybe at lunchtime. Yeah. Have a, have a glass or two. Um, but like to me, and I didn't, I didn't think this at the time, but like to me, beer and wine, that's not alcohol. That's kind of, that's, that comes with your meal. It's an accompaniment to, uh, you know, that accompanies your meal. Um, and I, I definitely got that impression with, you know, they didn't abuse alcohol that much. Like mm. it's considered to like, you know, in, in, I know in England, you know, here, the, the binge drinking is, is, can be quite, uh, quite, quite bad. Uh, but you know, they're like having a bottle of wine at lunch where, you know, everybody has a glass, glass and a half. It's just normal. Um, and I tend to agree. Um, but, um, yeah, there was definitely a few guys having some glasses in the week and, uh, but it definitely uh, didn't affect their performance uh, by any means. And so that was Grenoble, was it? And then yeah, and then what? One year? Yes. There? So, so I was two years in Grenoble, and uh, in the second year, uh, we 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 struggled quite a lot. We had um, Dean Richards as our coach. Um, we weren't struggling because of Dean. Um, you know, Dean, I, I had a great relationship with. He made me captain. Um, probably a little bit too early is that I didn't have the, the command of French uh, enough to be able to communicate to everybody effectively. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I thought I had a good, uh, I had a good uh, rapport with um, the French guys, the guys that kind of spoke English and French and then the English guys. Um, but, you know, there was quite a, quite a divide in the, in the group, um, which I didn't have the capacity to deal with. Um, there were some issues uh, at the presidential level with, you know, paying money out of image rights contracts and anyway, the DNACG, which is the, um, you know, the financial police in France that monitor all the rugby teams. Um, they, they got involved and I just, it wasn't a very stable place at that time. Um, so I started to look around. Um, I really enjoyed uh, being in France, but, you know, I knew there was some there was, uh, you know, some good opportunity in England. Um, so um, I was uh, I was contacted by um, Clermont Ferrand uh, after one of the games we played um, uh, against them in Grenoble, and then I was also uh, speaking with Leicester. Um, and uh, so Richard Cockrell was the director of rugby or the head coach uh, in Leicester at the time. Um, and uh, you know, I talked to Clermont and I talked with uh, Richard. Um, and uh, he asked me straight up, uh, he said, oh, so um, who else are you speaking with? And uh, I said, oh, I'm, I'm actually speaking with Clermont. And he said, oh, go there. And I was like, really? <laughs> he said, no, I just, I spent a few years there. And he said it was one of the best experiences of my life. <coughs> Excuse me. And, um, and he, said, he said, go there. I said, well, you just helped me, helped me make the decision. So uh, I went and visited Clermont the following week. 
their installation, you know, their infrastructure and everything was top notch. You know, they had a massive stadium and they were, they were looking to build more. Um, and, um, you know, I think maybe at that time things would have gone different if I had gone to Leicester. Um, but I think one of the other things that stopped me going there was I knew as my opportunity, sorry, as my, um, yeah, as the opportunity in Wales was to always get the Welsh guy ahead. I knew in England it would be the same thing. Um, and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't the GIF rules in France yet. There wasn't the kind of that, um, that uh, kind of policy of trying to push foreigners out. So uh, I, I signed with Claremont and, uh, and that's where uh, I stayed for uh, the next uh, 11 years. Cool. And so when you were chatting to the different clubs, like, are you just, does your agent put you in touch and then you're just kind of having chats to see if there's a fit? Like you're not negotiating a contract at that point, is it? Or are you just trying to suss out where it'd be a good fit or how do those conversations go? Yeah, so it's it's me trying to find a good fit. That's exactly it. Um, you know, I I work, I'd be involved in the in the contract talks as well. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, my agent would deal with most of that. Um, as I got older, I did most of that myself. Um, but uh, it was um, you know, uh, it was really more to find a good fit for for me, my playing style, what you know, what the squad looks like. You know, am I going to get a chance to play? Am I going to be you know maybe pushed out because there's maybe a bunch of French internationals or something like that. But, um, you know, Clermont had a bunch of young guys, uh, some good senior guys, um, you know, especially at second row. You had uh, Thibaut Priva, who's one of my best friends now. Um, and he's, he's a guy played, played, I think over 400 top flight games was professional for like 20, 21 years. Um, you know, a legend of the game. And the two of us had a great, great relationship. And, um, and then there was a lot of other internationals. So we had a, the kind of the framework of a really, really good team. We just uh, needed, uh, you know, a top level coach to kind of put it all together. Yeah. And, you know, when you're made captain there, like in Grenoble, you're still young, like relatively young. And once again, like, st- like you're jumping up through levels really quick as well. Like, you know, playing with caps, playing a bit with Canada, playing in Div 1 in Wales and then straight over yeah. to top 14. And like, how was it like, when did you feel that you're like, all right, I'm, you know, comfortable like playing and like at that level or are you always just like, all right, I'll just do my best and just work as hard as I can. Or how, how do you get, like, it's just big jumps and then a big responsibility. Yeah. Well, at that time it wasn't, it wasn't the, the top 14 yet. It was the top 16. Okay. So with Grenoble, we had two pools of eight. When I went to Claremont, that's when the top 14 started. Um, and, but I've always just kind of taken things uh, in stride and, uh, and done my best and worked my ass off and tried to be, um, try to do what I think is the best to help the team move forward. Um, you know, if it's smashing rocks or making tackles or, you know, trying to be, you know, a bit of a line out whiz or whatever the coach or the squad needs, that's what I'm going to do. Um, you know, I want to play my role to the, you know, to the utmost. Um, and, uh, you know, if somebody gets the better of me, well, then that's fine. But I mean, I'm going to come back uh, next week a hell of a lot harder and work a hell of a lot, uh, you know, more work harder and, and try to, try to be, try to, try to be dominant because that's kind of, that's how I grew up. You know, I, I've always worked hard. I've always tried to be the most dominant player in my position and in any sport that I ever played, I always wanted to be the best. So, you know, that kind of inner fire, uh, hasn't stopped is still here with me now as a coach um and uh, it definitely helped me you know 
managed to be, you know, have a, have a good career. Yeah. It's such a good um, point you make there about trying to be the best for the team. And, you know, like if you, people chat to coaches and it's like, what does the team need from me in this role? And just doing your role to the very, very best, like that'll give you the best chance of, of succeeding. Yeah. For me, it's always been just, you know, do my best for the, for the good of the team. You know, it's, um, uh, I don't know if I was, you know, ever the best. I don't think I was, but, um, you know, I, I tried to be the, the best that I could be for, for the squad and, uh, and, uh, you know, keep, keep pushing forward. And, you know, I think it worked, you know, I spent 11 years at Claremont. I played almost 300 games for them and in the Heineken Cup and the top 14 and, you know, probably another 400 top, uh, not another, but total of around 400 top flight games in my career. So, you know, I definitely had a lot of fun and, uh, you know, enjoyed it. So, um, you know, at the end of the day, that's the most important thing. Yeah. And you probably know as a coach now, there's nothing better when a player does say, like, what exactly do you need from me? What do you need me to do? And then you give them three or three or four things, and then they just do that to the best of their ability. You're like, yeah, I'm going to pick that person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, you just, um, you know, you don't need to make it too complicated. Um, you know, stick to your roles and, you know, find guys that are, that are willing to, you know, be a part of that team structure, but also, you know, do their best to uh to try and help the team move forward and uh and then the, the day and you know see what happens when the, when the boys get out on the field yeah and you won the top 14 in claremont but it was what three i think three finals that you lost leading up to that what um i've heard that i've read different things but what what do you think it was that that first of all that you were losing and then what got you over the line um, I think there was a collection of things. There was no one thing that, um, you know, why we didn't win. Like, I think, uh, you know, it's almost, uh, uh, it's almost, if you look at when I got there in 2004, 2005, you know, we had the makings of a great team. Yeah. We didn't have the coaching staff that was really pu- pushing us to the standards needed to win week in, week out. We'd win like, you know, we, we, we'd win a home game for like by like 40 points and then next week we go away and we lose by like 15 so it was like it was really bizarre to me like i didn't understand this whole idea of not you know being 100 percent week in week out um that's definitely gone away now and, and as you see in the top 14 like you know every weekend there's home and away victories um but um you know when I, for, I lost my train of thought. Vern we, Cotter, yeah. was it? Or yes. So, so the yeah, mentality. so that's the, the finals, right. So Vern arrived um, in, in, in 05, 06. Uh, sorry, in uh, 00, yeah, 05, 06. And then the following year, we won European Cup, uh, European Challenge Cup against Bath. And we were in the final a couple weeks later. We lost that one, unfortunately, um, to Stafford say, which was like one of one that does kind of stick in my throat because I think, you know, we, we definitely deserve to win that, that game. We just made a mistake on the lineup at the end of the game. And, um, but the following year, uh, we lost against Toulouse and they were clearly a better team. Uh, the following year after that, we lost against Perpignan and, um, you know, we weren't aggressive enough in that game. Um, and then the following year in 2010, we, we just kind of, we nailed all the, we hit all the boxes um, and uh, we just nailed it. 
um, had, a, had a great time. And, uh, and man, when, uh, when we did win that, it was the first time on the 100th year anniversary of the club. I think after 11 finals previously throughout the history of the club, we finally won it. Um, and it was seriously like a volcano blowing up. Clermont's a volcanic region, and it was crazy. Pandemonium. Yeah, nice one. And what was it like being coached by Joe Schmidt when he was there at Claremont? Joe's awesome. Joe's awesome. He's uh, he's very, very good, um, you know, obviously being a teacher, um, very good at explaining things in very simple, concise ways, uh, but he's extremely precise. Um, you know, in everything that he does, there's a reason, um, and you know you'll get a you get one maybe two chances to get it right, and if you don't, well, you, you know, he'll, he'll he'll call you to task, um, and that's what you want when you're at you're at that level. You know, if you're a professional, you need to figure out things quickly. Um, you need to find solutions on the field and and at training, and um, he definitely pushed that. Um, he definitely pushed the, that you know level of precision up for us that year, um, and you know we kind of. It was like you got you got you got Vern, who's kind of the butcher, and then Joe, who's kind of the surgeon. So they were the perfect mesh of, you know, of styles and you know of what they wanted uh, their team to to do and how they wanted them to play. So, um, you know, Joe, I still I have a great relationship with him, and he's uh, was outstanding for us, and uh, and I think was a big part of uh, of us getting over the hump that year in two thousand ten. Yeah, that's interesting. So, like, Vern was kind of the coach that got the boys together, got everyone, like, up and motivated those kind of things. And then Joe, kind of the more technical, like, I know he was he attack coach back then? Yeah, so Joe, Joe, it was kind of like forwards and backs. So, uh, Vern did forwards yeah. and Joe did the backs. Um, and, you know, Vern with his style up front was very, you know, front on, you know, finding space, you know, under guys and through guys. And um, with that, uh, you know, with the precision that Joe brought to the to our back line and, and to our general attack play, I think it was a, uh, I said it was a, it was a perfect uh, osmosis of uh, two different coaching styles in the, in the group. Yeah, that that is the perfect combination because I, I think like rugby, you gotta play expansive rugby these days, and you know, play play good rugby, but you still need a strong set piece, you need a strong scrum line out mall, dominant forwards. You know, you can't have one without the other. You need, you need the two. No, uh, yeah. like they say in France, no scrum, no win, right? Um, and you look at the French team now; they're they're one of the best in the world at the moment um, because they've got you know a huge forward pack that can move. Um, and on top of that, you know they got a bench where you, you take a bunch of 120, 125 kilo guys off, and you bring on a bunch of 125, 130 kilo guys on who can move. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, yeah, I definitely agree that the game is more high speed and, you know, more expansive and that's the way that, and that's how the game is going to continue to progress, but, uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't change the fact that he needs some, he needs some beef to get some go forward when, uh, you know, when things are tight. Yeah. A hundred percent. I'd never heard of that. No scrum, no win, but it's, yeah, it's so true. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I, yeah, I was coached by Mike Crudock, the old Welsh coach, and he like we spent like half hour, forty minutes twice a week on our scrum, and we used to just destroy teams. And it's like he used to just yeah. say to us, "It's like they it'll just get in their head. They knock it on, they know it's coming. We knock it on, they know it's coming." <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's and that's it. It's it's a big psychological edge, you know, when you know that in certain instances you're going to get physically dominated. 
it's very, very difficult to deal with that for a lot of teams, you know. And if you know every time scrum time, the guys are going to roll over you and they're going to, you know, push push you back. And if you fall on the ground, they're going to all going to walk all over you. And yeah. we did that plenty of times. You yeah. Know? yeah, you can't ruck anymore, but you can walk over people when you when you blow them back in a scrum. And that is demoralizing. And, you know, that's, in, in my opinion, like I love dominating people in, in the rugby field. And that's how you, uh, and that's how you get, uh, how you get wins. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. That's how you do it legally. Like you say, you can't rook, but yeah. yeah, for sure. And then talk to me about in recent years, you started a foundation to, to raise awareness for a concussion at the grassroots level. Yeah. So, um, you know, with, with my major issue, uh, in, in 2015, 2016, uh, in the semifinal and the final of the Heineken cup, I had, uh, I had, Basically, three major concussion inc- incidents um, in a two-week period, um, and uh, you know, I was I was taken off the field for blood when I had a major um, head-on-head with uh, Billy Bonapola coming into a rock against Saracens in uh, in San Etienne. Um, we basically it was just an accident of play where both guys arrived at rock at the same time. It was just like two uh, Rams butting heads. Um, so I was taken off for blood and then I went to the HIA. They said I was no good. So they said, go take your boots off and sat down. And, uh, then they come back in five minutes later and they say, Oh, Seb's no good. You got to come back out and get on. Can you, can you play? Can you play? And I'm like, Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. <coughs> Sorry. Um, anyway, I go on, I, I finished the game. Don't remember anything. I'm like, my head's in cotton. I'm like, I'm out from left field. I get back in the uh, in the bus. We're driving home. Everybody's fired up. You know, I try to have a beer. I don't want to drink a beer. I just want to go home and go to sleep. But I can't sleep because I got like bees in my head. So then I'm, you know, do the HIA two the next day with the doctor. Going to see the HIA three for the neurologist uh, Monday Tuesday. Um, and I'm, I'm 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 clearly concussed. I can't play in this coming weekend, which was the semifinal of top fourteen or probably the final, the, the Heineken Cup uh, the following week. So anyway, they give me a 10-day um, return to play, which is normally, it's a six-day return to play, which, as we all know, six-day return to play, Saturday to Saturday, means that you can get back and play Friday night and then play Saturday, right, which is it's not fit for purpose. Yeah, yeah it's ridiculous. Um, you know, all, all the guys that have played rugby, we understand it. We, we understand that it's, there's no way that, you know, boxers get KO'd. They're out for like three, four months. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, whereas rugby guys are like, oh no, you can get back in six days. It's like, you know, come on. It's, it's ridiculous. Like, yeah. Maybe you can get back in six days, but most people won't. No. Um, so anyway, I got 10 days, um, and then went in with a neurologist, did all the tests again. Um, you know, they wanted me to play. I wanted me to play, you know, everybody wanted me to play. So like, you're going to get the green light. And I got the green light. And, and then in the, in that final, I, I made a tackle first, I think first or second tackle of the game. Um, and uh, it was perfect tackle shoulder on, you know, looking forward. I actually tackled two guys. Had Chris Maslow, he come through the hole and the Xavier Choki, their loose head was, uh, was right behind him. So I actually hit two guys. Um, and, uh, and I finished on my ass looking up at the stars going, Jesus Christ, what the hell just happened? Cause like normally I'd be able to dominate a, a tackle like that, especially with like good technique and nice in and low. Mm. Uh, anyway, I'm like, I'm out again. So I get taken off, go through another HIA. Um, I'm, I clear the HIA, they, they put me back on. 
So go through the game, go through the game. And then I have another head collision in the second half where I, um, I clash heads with one of their back rowers um, and I go off for blood. But like I'm, in, I'm not in good shape. <laughs> and uh, the doctors uh, stitch me up in the, uh, in the change room. And I start puking into the uh, into the garbage can because like I'm, I'm I'm nauseous. I feel like my head spinning. I feel like you know everything's kind of the bees are back again, and, and I'm sitting there with uh, you know the, the kit man, the doctor, and uh, the 24th man, which was uh, Benson Stanley, one of our centers. Um, and even he said he's like, hey, you can't put him back on. He's vomiting into the the, the, the garbage can, and I'm like. I feel way better now because normally, you know, after you vomit, you get that shot of adrenaline. So I'm mm. like, yeah, yeah, sweet. No, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. So I go back out and I finish the game and I'm like, I don't remember anything. Um, and the worst part about it is when I got off the field, unfortunately lost, um, I get back on the bus and, and I'm like upstairs. I see my family and my, my wife and she's like beside herself. She's like, how did they let you back on? This is ridiculous. Um, my dad's there and my, my dad's a physician up in Squamish. So he's like, he's like, let me have a look at you. He's like, you don't look right. Um, so anyway, I, uh, I went back, um, back to Clermont on the, on the plane that night. And I was like, I was, I was, I was a zombie. Mm. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I wanted to sleep, but I like had these bees in my head and I don't even think I slept for about, you know, Eight, eight or nine days, ten days or something. I was I was a monster at the house. Kids couldn't come in the in the in the room. No light, no sound, and I was I was bad. And uh, my wife's like, you know, calling the club, saying you got to send a doctor out. And, uh, and I was I was in a bad way. So um, you know, it was uh, from that and seeing how I was dealt with by the club, basically just kind of you know shoot away. Um, uh, we said, listen, we we need to pro be proactive around this, and uh, we decided to um, create a um, concussion ed concussion education foundation, which is called Rugby Safety Network, um, which we've actually just rebranded to Rugby Support Network um, to help you know people with more mental health issues and after career stuff. But at the time, it was um, something that we wanted to do uh, at the grassroots level and you know, kids playing rugby because they see us play every weekend and they see guys, you know, like myself go off for an HIA and come back 10 minutes, 15 minutes later. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that can't happen because one, first of all, they're kids and two, there's no HIA in age grade rugby or even in like juniors rugby. So, you know, but they were still thinking it. I know I've, I've seen stories in Ireland and England where you like so-and-so comes out. He's like, Oh, it's okay. I'm a doctor. Yeah. He's fine. You know, you can keep playing. Like, no, no, yeah. these age grade rugby, these are kids. So, you know, uh, and all, on top of that, at that time, there was, um, there was four or five kids who had passed away due to, uh, you know, impacts in rugby in France alone. So, you know, there was kids that had died through um, spinal, uh, you know, severing their spinal cord, uh, thoracic shock on big shots to their chest. Uh, and then a kid uh, in uh, Brioude, which is just next to Clermont, um, who had died uh, from second impact syndrome uh, after playing, getting taken off the field, not feeling very well, vomiting in the change room afterwards, and nobody had the, the thought to take him to the hospital, and he died that night in his sleep. So, you know, these continuous things that were coming up and nobody was really talking about them, uh, I thought, you know, we need to be proactive around this, and we need to get out there and, you know, and talk about the 
different parameters around you know when you get a concussion, how to deal with it. You know, make sure you go see your physician. Don't try to um, don't try to you know just tough it out because you know it's a major injury. Um, and as as we know, you can't play where you're injured. You can play where you're hurt. Every rugby player plays when they're hurt. You know, there's always the shoulder or a dead leg or whatever it may be. But when you're injured, you can't play. Um, and a head injury is one of the most important. You know, if not the most important. So, um, you know, with uh, with RSN, um, you know, I was going around France, uh, talking in rugby schools. Uh, we, we did a, um, a bunch of tournaments down in the south of France. Uh, we were invited to Monaco to do um, a big uh, concussion seminar before their under under 12s and under 14s tournament. Um, and you know, along my career as a player and then as a coach, um, just trying to educate um, you know young kids around the whole problem throughout France and, and, you know, across the world. Yeah, it's brilliant. Fair play. I, yeah, I think the HIAs are bad and like, I'm not sure have we fully understood yet. Like I just personally was playing two weeks ago for the Ravens got knocked out like a high shot, a shoulder to the head referee puts her arm out. My, the teammates I can see going like this and then physio comes on, does something with my eyes and then I'm like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, I'm fine. Like, you know, he's like, what's the score? And I'm like, oh, I piece it together. And then I play on. And like, you know, symptoms of concussion are like anger, emotional. And like, I was just upset, angry for the few days. Out. I was in the horrors. But, you know, then the next week I see another guy knocked out, physio go on. I'm not playing, like I'm recovering, but knocked out, lying down, physios go on. He gets up, he talking, play on. And it's like, I then stopped. I was like, get him off the field. Like, like, isn't that it? Like, you know, any, any sort of knock to the head, it's just get them off. the. You just sit out the game. <laughs> exactly. It's your life ain't worth a game of rugby. You know what I mean? No. Um, and uh, so, you know, from that, it's simple. For me, it's a simple piece of education. So that's why kids at a young age need to learn that you get a head knock, you're injured. You go off the field. You don't come back until you are not injured. It's like I always likened it in France to um, uh, drinking and driving. Drinking and driving in North America was always like, don't do it. You get a designated driver. Whereas in France, they're just trying not to drive. They're trying to drive and not lose their license. Where I'm like, no, that no, you don't get it. You can kill somebody. Whereas in in the concussion stuff, it's the same. Don't try to get through to play the game because with a head injury, you can, you can kill somebody. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's not worth it. Like I said, it's not a game of rugby ain't worth your life. So, you know, it's, it, and it's sad that, you know, that you say that's still happening in BC because I've always had the, uh, the impression or definitely it's been my experience that uh, the physios in, in, in BC and definitely when I came back from Rugby Canada were always very, very stringent on any type of uh, head injury, um, you know, issues and would always err on the side of caution um and uh, you know i think that's what needs to happen yeah and look it could be they didn't know or whatever they didn't see the hit or but i think as well it has to be referees teammates like once get like my i saw it look back in the video like the teammates like they throw their hands up or whatever but it's not it's no one's fault i don't think but i think everyone can be aware like if you're coaching refereeing playing and if you see someone get a bang in their head, just like that person goes off. Oh, totally, totally. Like I've I've seen it numerous times in, uh, when I when I'm coaching. 
you know, whether it was with the Development Academy or when it, whether it was with Canada or with my professional teams over in Europe. Like, I don't even ask the question. I can, you can see it yeah. on the video or you can see it on the field. You're like, oh yeah, um, call down the physio or, or the, um, sorry, the, the, the SSC coach say, I'll warm up so-and-so because I just saw so, so-and-so just got cracked one in the head. Yeah. He's out. Like you don't even ask the question, but it's, it's like I said, it comes down to education. People need to understand the risks. You need to understand, you know, how to spot it. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, if you pull a guy out and he misses 50 minutes of rugby or 20 minutes of rugby, like who cares? <laughs> who cares? Who cares? Yeah. You know, like, you know, sure. The player may be pissed off for, you know, a couple hours or a day or two, like, but really like they're erring on the side of your safety in terms of caution so you know, i don't i don't see the issue yeah 100 percent. and how, how are you now with like symptoms or do you have any um uh, it's it's hard to say you know because yeah. like you get headaches and you know i lose my train of thought uh, but is it because i'm tired is it because you know maybe um you know i didn't sleep well last night maybe you know who knows but um you know i i, I don't i I stay, I try to stay as healthy as I can. You know, I eat very well. I work out four or five times a week. You know, I do my best to make sure that I'm not going to be an old, you know, ordinary bastard because, you know, I've, I put my body through the ringer with skiing and boxing and wrestling and professional rugby for 20 years and, and car crashes and, you know, you know, being a shithead growing up in Squamish, you know, but, um, you know, I think, uh, the more I can stay ahead of it in, in terms of like eating well and, uh, just trying to be uh, as proactive as possible uh, hopefully i won't have any you know kind of early onset dementia or anything which like some of my ex um, teammates and colleagues are, are are now having um so fingers crossed that i i don't get any of that um but um you know it's that the the story i talked to you about in uh, in 2015-16 well that was um you know that i i wouldn't be surprised if that gives me some uh, some problems in the future yeah. And how long did that take to like get over or feel yourself? Because even like I've had a number of them, just for people listening, but like I had, I've probably had eight or I don't know, a good few. And at the first few, they weren't so bad. But like this one, like I was in the horrors for like three, four, five days. Like, yeah. like, and you talk about mental health there as well. Like I stay on top of that, like exercise, eat well, you know, don't drink too much anymore. And just like all the things that you can do, but then this head knock, like I was, Oh, it just put me through the ringer. Yeah. So at, at that time, uh, for me, it was, it was months, you know, it was months, months of, of, of trying to get, uh, trying to get back and try to feel normal. Mm. Um, I was actually trying to get uh, fit for the 2015 world cup that summer. Um, and, you know, as I talked to quite a few different neurologists in France and doctors at that time, I definitely didn't have much confidence in their uh, professional opinions after, you know, what I had gone through. Mm. So I said, listen, I'm going to do a bunch of tests with you guys, but then I'm going to go back to Canada and I'm going to do the same stuff with doctors, you know, that are kind of impartial and don't really care if I get back on the rugby field. Mm. Um, and I did that and I got the green light from them. So I got the green light after a couple months in France. And then more importantly, I got the green light from uh, some doctors that I knew and respected here in Canada. And that was the only reason I kept playing because otherwise I was going to, I was going to retire. Um, but, uh, you know, I managed after that to, to play in the world cup and then play, uh, Played another couple of years um, in the Pro D2, and um, and now ever since I've been coaching. Yeah, 
good stuff. Well, yeah, good they got cleared and things aren't so bad at the moment. But um, yeah. then with the uh, coaching, so when do you start coaching when you're playing in France? Yeah. Is that? Yeah, I started coaching. Um, you know, kind of towards the last the last five years of my time at Clermont. I was working with the cadets, which were like the under 16s, and then the Espoirs in behind that with the uh, you know, Espoir team is kind of like the academy team. Yeah. Those are the guys that get drawn up into the professional uh, squad, so kind of under 23s. Um, and uh, we did very well. We won uh, three French championships uh, with working with that team. And then uh, I started going through my, my coaching levels. Um, and then, uh, you know, when I left Clermont, went to Oyana, um, I played a year there and um, it was, my body was, was finished. I was 38 years old. You know, I was, to be able to play rugby to that age, to me, was, I was yeah. extremely lucky. Um, and, uh, and I said, well, my body just can't recover fast enough. So I said, you know, I'm gonna, I gotta go full-time coaching. I talked with the club and they were great. They said, you know, I was on a four-year contract, two years playing, two years coaching. They're like, listen, if you want to modify your contract and we go into coaching right away, like we can do that. They were moving some guys around anyway. Um, and that's when I started full-time coaching. So, um, you know, I've been, uh, I've been a professional coach ever since then. Nice. And you're out in Newfoundland now with the provincial team there. Yeah, so uh, after Oyana, there was uh, a couple years there, and then I was in Provence as the general manager. And um, when I had the opportunity to, to restart the uh, Canadian Development Academy in Victoria, uh, and then also coach with the uh, with the forwards of the national team, I just, it was a huge opportunity for me to, to one re like kind of rebuild the the development academy, which, to my opinion, never should have been um, you know gotten rid of. I think Canada's, um, you know, world uh, world rankings is a direct correlation to that, in that we haven't enough players coming through a professional environment to compete at the uh, compete at the international stage. Um, you know, I think now we're starting to get back to a, a level where we've got guys that are playing in good university clubs, decent uh, clubs like rugby clubs, like kind of domestic clubs, and then more importantly in the MLR and even some uh, some of the boys over in Europe who are playing either academy draw, um, academy uh, teams or, you know, even top 14 uh, um, as, as a few of the guys are. So, um, you know, there's there's definitely better pathways in North America for guys playing rugby. Um, and, you know, the, the, the Pacific Pride, as it was known in the past, um, is definitely one integral piece for that. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know if you guys have watched, uh, read the, uh, the high performance review. It was a pretty damning report of rugby Canada. And, uh, I mean, I, I, I put my hand up in 2019 when I arrived, when I was in the, I was in the, in my office and, and there was nobody there. I'm like, where's everybody? Like I'm used to having, like, I was, I was in, it was in Provence and I had an eight, eight million euro budget. And I got back to rugby Canada and I had the, the development Academy where we had $232,000. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to cut some corners here. And anyway, we managed to get it going and we had a, we had a great year and, um, you know, we got a lot of guys off in, in the two years I was with the Academy. We got 36, 37 guys into professional contracts or into, uh, into academies over in Europe. And, uh, you know, we start, and then the following summer, last summer, we had, uh, 11 guys in that England, uh, England tour. England Wales tour um, that came through the the academy. So you know, there's definitely there's definitely the players are there. You know, you, you play with the the Ravens. You know, you guys are one of the, the top teams club teams in, in in the BCRU, and you know the the talent's there. 
But this young talent just needs, as you said, to play regular games and to get regular high-level competition um, so that we can push on and hopefully uh, once they figure out this, uh, you know, this high-performance review, they can hopefully start pushing uh, – Pushing uh, on to winning more games and uh, and you know maybe get a bit more Canadiana and uh, into the coaching roles. Yeah, it'll. Yeah, I saw some of the report and yeah, I think it, I think it could be like the not making the World Cup could be a blessing in disguise and restart. And I do think the like the pride, like the amount of players, like you say, you name what thirty odd gone through, and even now, that's the game I missed. But the Ravens played against the Pride and I think won by a score. But like they're still so competitive and they're just constantly losing players losing like good you want to you want yeah. to constantly lose players. promoting yeah but um yeah. no like you say the, the the talent is there like these 19 20 21 year olds are are coming in putting a team together and are very competitive against the other top teams yeah yeah totally you know like and like i said like when i when i go back in 2019 yeah there was no plan but you know there's people in the building that understand what needs to be done, you know, like yeah. Kingsley, Henry, and myself, we said, listen, clearly sevens is a development tool. Let's start aligning things so that we get these guys out after the Olympics. They're obviously half the team was going to retire anyway, get the young guys in, they start getting a taste of international rugby. And then we push them on into the, into the 15s. If, uh, if that's, you know, what we need. And then we can really start, you know, start looking at, at winning some games because we've got guys that are getting that international experience. They're playing at a high level, they're fit. And then when we get into the, to the 15s, when we can, we can really start, you know, trying to, trying to win some games because, you know, it's, it's a development tool at the end of the day. So, you know, we, we had a high performance plan. Um, Rugby Canada didn't, uh, mm-hmm. but the coaches in inside the, the, the entity did. And I know that the coaches uh, there, Phil, Phil Mack, uh, um, who's leading the pride has has the, a coherent plan and, and he's pushing that forward and uh, and that's great because he's a young coach and uh, and is doing a great job. Yeah, for sure. Thanks Will, for your time. Really appreciate it. Um, couple, couple more questions. What was the yep. best day in your career? Like, if you could relive one day, what would it be? Um, well, definitely the first uh, first time I played for Canada uh, back in two thousand two in Chicago. I uh, I went on for. Uh, uh, I went on for Al Sharon, so you know, I'm 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 by no means a legend, but uh, I went on for a legend, Canadian rugby legend, and uh, that was definitely humbling and uh, and a huge honor for me to to pull on the the Canadian jersey and be on the field uh, for the first time. Um, and uh, yeah, so that day uh, back in 2002, uh, we won the game as well. So uh, that was uh, that was a huge honor. And then close second is uh, obviously winning the the Bouclier uh, Brennus uh, in 2010 with Clorma. Um, that was uh, that was pretty special. Pretty special. Yeah, no, that's cool. I'm sure a lot of Canadians would be happy to hear that patriotism. Yeah. Any regrets during your career? Um, no, I'm actually uh, I'm actually quite uh, quite happy that uh, I don't have any regrets for my career. Um, you know, as I said, uh, when I played, I always played as, as best I could. I, I worked my ass off to make sure I was I was dominant in my role. You kind of mentioned this before, but um. Well, what advice would you give young players today? Um, that's 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 a tough one because uh, it depends on where they want to go, you know. Um, you know, but for me, like say it's it's a young youngster here in Canada. Well, you know, just get out and and, and enjoy yourself. You know, 
get in, get involved with either a high school team or more importantly, a club and be a good club member and do your best uh, for the team that you're playing with. And, uh, you know, if you want to get to, uh, you know, maybe a higher level, well, you just got to keep working hard and then looking for opportunities, um, you know, and ask questions and, you know, be a, be a pain in the ass with your coach saying you want to play every weekend and, uh, you know, just put yourself out there, you know, don't be, uh, don't be shy and, uh, and do your best to, um, you know, to, to be, uh, promote yourself. Good stuff. Well, Jamie, cheers. Thank you so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Been uh, unreal chatting. No problem, Brian. Anytime. Hope you enjoyed the chat. Please send on some friends now. And also, would you be a legend and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts? Just let me know what you enjoy about the pod. I really appreciate and enjoy hearing your feedback. It really helps. On the topic of concussion, Firstly, I just want to commend Jamie for wanting to help young rugby players and rugby players in general by spreading awareness. Awareness of the seriousness of concussion, which is also known as traumatic brain injury. I, and probably you too, love rugby for the physicality of the game. It's essentially its unique selling point and what makes it so fun to play, so good to watch and just such a great game. I played lots of other sports growing up, basketball, Gaelic football, soccer, hurling, box for a bit, played golf, tennis, swam, whatever I could. Literally played every sport I could, but rugby was just my favourite. And it was the skills, but the mix of physicality and skills is what I loved. I really think that concussions are serious though. And when there is a concussion on the field, that the person needs to be taken off the field. You've probably heard about the class action lawsuit former rugby players led by Alex Popham and Steve Thompson are bringing against World Rugby. Essentially, they are both in their early 40s and have early onset dementia because of repeated blows to the head. I think we all understand how concussion is serious and it's nothing to be taken lightly, but unfortunately, like I mentioned in the pod, My experience recently is that people are putting the result of a game still, still putting the results of games ahead of the safety of players. As Jamie said, there has been numerous deaths in rugby because of people getting bangs on the head and being allowed to play on. So from my understanding, the most common one is if someone gets concussed, gets a bang in their head, they keep playing and then the second time they get a bang in their head, it's fatal. And I say being allowed to play on because it's not up to the player to put their hand up and walk off the field because when you're concussed, as I know, you are not thinking straight. And I think it's up to the other people there, the referee, the other players, especially the coaches, the administrators, the spectators, the people on the sideline to step in and pull that player off or just make sure that that player comes off the field. Like, if you're one of those other people and you see somebody get a bang in the head, a clear bang on the head, and they're concussed, and you see them continuing play and you don't say anything, and then that person dies because of another collision later in the game, how would you feel? So not doing anything isn't actually okay either. 
you have to have the courage to speak up and get that player off because from my experience unfortunately the vast majority of people don't do anything even when they see someone get knocked out and this is something called the bystander effect as well in that people in groups if they follow the group and if nobody does anything they don't do anything so it does take courage to step forward and do something 10 years ago we didn't really understand these things or 15 years ago as much as we do now and a lot of players people played on after they were clearly concussed a lot of us would like to think that things are different today i obviously don't know what goes on around the world but yeah my experience recently here in bc have been that clearly concussed players are being allowed to play on as i chatted about i got a shoulder to the head a high shot ref saw the physio came on i kept playing i myself did say i'm good i'm good but you're just not thinking straight and then i was all over the place for the rest of the match and looking back on the video of the match the very next kickoff after i got the bang i'm standing on the halfway line waiting to receive it when obviously i should be behind my own 10 but i literally don't know where i am then 10 minutes later a lineup ball goes straight through my hands and in the second half i jump for a high ball and literally i'm like two meters away from it so just nothing good comes out of allowing a concussed player to play on. The very next week I was watching my club play against another team. I was standing alone in the corner of the field with sunglasses on because I couldn't deal with the noise on the sideline and you can't deal with the lights either. That's why the sunglasses, like my head was still in bits from the concussion a week later. But then in the game, our flanker put his head on the wrong side of a tackle and got a knee to the head. He literally landed face down in the dirt from the tackle and didn't move for over 20 seconds, like not three or five seconds, a considerable amount of time. The physio and another medical person ran onto the field. He's still face down at this point. Play's going on and then after another 30, 40 seconds, he start to get, starts to get to his feet. He runs off to join the play and the two medics come off the field. He gets back in the defensive line and I'm seeing this like everybody else. And straight away I'm like, what is happening here? I genuinely could not believe what I was seeing. 90 seconds passed, two minutes passed. And I'm just like, what's happening? Like nobody's doing anything, he's still out there. He gets back in the D line, he goes for a jackal. There's a stoppage, he gets some water. The play goes on, he joins a scrum. To be honest, I started getting angry then, so I walked up to the two medical people and told them that the player has to be taken off right now. He did then come off. I went over to see how he was, and he said, I'm okay. I saw a flash, a bang, but I'm okay. And that's obviously black and white clear cut concussion. I'm not blaming anyone in particular. I just hope that we can learn from it because player welfare really is the number one most important thing in our game it's as jamie said like he laughed it's so much more important than a rugby match and i just wanted to share this because we hear of things happening to pro players in the past like jamie said how he was thrown in when he was clearly concussed and what just wasn't treated right 
and I like to think that the top level is being cleaned up but at club levels from what I've experienced recently high shots aren't being penalized first of all like they are in the pro level and then like I mentioned concussed players are being allowed to play on player welfare players mental health and safety are just things I care deeply about and I like Jamie would just like spread awareness and like he said no game of rugby is worth your life if you're a regular listener and you like what I'm doing here if you get value from these chats if listening to the pod makes your day just a little bit better please consider paying me the price of a coffee each month for the podcasts that's four podcasts and you can do this on patreon.com forward slash off field rugby and the link is also in the show notes it's the price for coffee each month that's four podcasts and you can opt out whenever you want to so the next time you're buying a coffee if you think oh i'd buy brian a coffee then that's essentially what the patreon is you're buying me a coffee for the nearly five hours of podcasts each month And I can see who signs up, so it absolutely doesn't go unnoticed. Thank you so much to those that have already signed up on patreon.com forward slash offfieldrugby. I really, really appreciate it. I know that there's about 10 million other podcasts out there that you could be listening to right now. So thank you so much for clicking in today. Thank you for sending it on to your friends, for sharing it on social media. I really, really appreciate all that. Have a brilliant day. Cheers.